Well, I don't know. I think my sermon's been given. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. That was lovely. Now to God, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Put on the whole armor of God. I have memories of a flannel board in the children's Sunday night church service with an outline of a man and the pieces of Roman armor, including a dramatic-looking helmet with a central plume of feathers and a shiny breastplate and the teacher sticking them on the flannel board. And then there was the meditation one summer at church camp with a camper hauled to the front to serve as an illustration, and the camp pastor dressed him. I don't remember all of the armor. I think the breastplate was a life preserver, Todd, from the boathouse. And I know the helmet was a colander from the kitchen. This passage, this extended metaphor, lends itself to that kind of teaching. It's simple and memorable and presents a graphic picture. So maybe that's why I've tended to skip over it. I love the book of Ephesians, the language, the focus on peace. But as a person who spent her career working toward and teaching about peacemaking, this passage, this image, is not one I've liked very much. I don't easily embrace the image of a soldier wearing battle gear as an expression of my faith. That's one of the good things, I guess, about the lectionary. The discipline of following it can force us to look again at scripture passages that we would rather ignore. When I agreed to teach on this Sunday, and Daryl sent me the lectionary texts, my heart sank. But the more I worked with this passage, the more I realized this is a message I need these days. This is a scripture passage we all need. So Todd just talked with the children about protection. And over the past year, we've gained new images of protection. One expression we added to our vocabulary, along with words like spike protein and herd immunity, is PPE. PPE. Can you hear me? I'm getting an echo. Anyway, sorry. PPE, short for personal protective equipment. We've seen those pictures of medical personnel and first responders suited up in layers of gowns and wearing head coverings and face shields and goggles. And we've all learned to move through the world with masks on our faces 
In the early days, there were the PPE wars, competition between hard-pressed cities and states to find the protective gear they needed to cope with surges of ill people, and stories of medical personnel, remember this, making their own gowns out of garbage bags? So maybe this notion of needing to wear special things to put on protection isn't so foreign or far away after all. But my struggle with this passage doesn't have so much to do with putting on protective gear. In this case, the image, the context, is one of warfare. We put on this armor to go to war. I tend to link the expression spiritual warfare with the guys who stand on the street corners and harangue passersby. Spiritual warfare sounds too much like a sort of mythological thing, something that happens outside our world. It seems to go along with a theology that sees the world in very dualistic terms, darkness against light, without any nuance. We're either on one side or the other, and the mixed nature of reality in which I'm both saved and sinner, in which I can do both good and evil, seems to be denied. Spiritual warfare has always seemed to me to describe the Christian faith in terms that are too simple and too triumphalistic. So spiritual warfare is not my favorite expression. It's not one I tend to use. But I had to reconsider that when I met Walter Wink. Some of you may know of Walter Wink's work. He wrote an extensive three-volume study on the language of the powers in the New Testament called Naming the Powers, Unmasking the Powers, and Engaging the Powers, and summarized later in one book, The Powers That Be. I met Walter when he was invited by the Fellowship of Reconciliation to South Africa in 1989 to lead a weekend retreat for South African church leaders. Since MCC helped fund the Fellowship of Reconciliation in South Africa, I was invited to participate in this retreat. Wink explores the language of the powers in the New Testament described or named in various scriptures. Here in Ephesians, the words are rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And at other places in the New Testament, there are different lists that describe these powers. But it always gives you a sense of something that's beyond human, and that in some way is an enemy of God. Wink describes the powers as forces that shape our world and our society that are larger than us, that we aren't really able to live outside of, but that we also can't control. The powers have been created by God, but Usually they're in rebellion against God because they take on a life of their own 
and they claim for themselves absolute power without limits. They don't acknowledge the ultimate lordship of God. They want to act like lords themselves. Now, when I talk about it that way, it makes the powers sound alive. And in some ways, they act that way. Although for somebody who lives in a post-enlightenment scientific world, I hesitate to go there. But the powers describe larger-than-human entities, systems that exercise control and that shape our existence. The South African church leaders in that retreat were folks who were on the front lines in the struggle against apartheid in those days, working in communities that were threatened by police and state-sponsored death squads, and many of them had spent time in detention and had been tortured. So when Walter talked about how he understood the powers, as described in the New Testament, they could recognize what he was talking about. They could understand that forces like police or courts or governments, which were meant to be good things to maintain order, to allow people safety and flourishing, could instead become forces that work against justice and against life. And it's not hard for us to see that too. We know the stories about roads and railroads that are meant to connect and transport goods and people across our country, a good thing, but that are routed through communities and neighborhoods of poor people or black people or native people that displace folks and break up communities. We know of courts that are tasked with seeking justice, but that systemically discriminate against some races and some economic classes. We see the effects of lies and conspiracy theories that spread like wildfire on the internet. The powers are not some kind of odd, mythical devil creatures with tails and horns. They are real forces that shape our lives. The way they're referred to in our passage, the wiles of the devil, <laughs> flaming arrows of the evil one, may sound like something from fantasy, but the powers are real. They are the real systems that shape our world in ways that do not bring life. We're surrounded by the effects of these forces and this is what the armor of God protects us from. And what armor it is. It's been suggested that in evoking the armor of God, the writer of Ephesians is making a link back to Isaiah 59. This is a description in Isaiah 59 of the way God will punish injustice and oppression. Isaiah 59 begins with a lengthy description of the sins that God sees, of the ways that God's people have turned their backs on him. So verse 14 begins, justice is turned back and righteousness stands at a distance for truth stumbles in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. 
and whoever turns from evil is despoiled. And then we have this account of God's response. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and was appalled. There was no one to intervene. So his own arm brought him victory, and his righteousness upheld him. And then in verse 17, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and wrapped himself in fury as in a mantle. So God, in Isaiah 59, puts on the armor of God to right the wrongs that God sees. This isn't some little campfire skip. And our passage in Ephesians calls us to take on this same armor, the armor of God. So what are we supposed to be wearing? First of all, there's the belt of truth. A belt holds things together. So truth is crucial in this struggle. We live in a context of lies, of rumors. Truth is elusive in our public life. And truth-telling, integrity, is the basic mark of those who follow Jesus. Remember, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Truth can be controversial. Telling truth can bring down consequences on us. Truth and truth-telling is a central characteristic of those who follow Jesus. So if the belt holds everything together, the largest and most prominent part of the armor is the breastplate, the central section that covers and protects all the vital organs. And in God's armor, the breastplate is righteousness. Now, righteousness, that's not a word we use in our everyday language. It's a word we use at church. So it's kind of hard to get your head around it. But it's worth remembering that in Greek, there's one word, dikaiosune, that can be translated as righteousness or as justice. In Isaiah 59, God puts on the breastplate of righteousness because there is no one practicing justice. So righteousness is what God does as a warrior. It's justice at work. That's our breastplate. And on our feet, we're to put the shoes that make us ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Even in the midst of this battle imagery, proclaiming the gospel of God's peace is part of the grounding of a disciple. And we're to take up our shield of faith, our trust in God's power, and to grasp the helmet of salvation or liberation both for ourselves and for everyone. And in our hand, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, the presence of God with us and within us. We live in an individualistic society. So it's natural to read a passage like this as being addressed to me 
as one person. Me, you, each of us need to take up this arm, put on this armor and take up this battle. But as so often happens, something gets lost in translation. In English, we use the same word you, meaning an individual, and you, meaning a collective, a plural form. Unless, of course, you live in Lancaster, where you might say use for the plural form. So it's easy for us to read this as something we each individually need to do. But in fact, this admonition, this passage, is addressed not to you, the individual, but to you, the collective, the church. So it's not just me in battle, standing by myself against the forces and powers that can do evil in our world. It's us. It's the church as a whole that's being admonished to take up this armor. We together stand against the destructive forces that seem to control our world. We, the church, together hold to and speak truth. Together, we embody righteousness and strive for justice. All of us together, the church, stand ready to share the gospel of peace. We together hold as a shield our faith and as a helmet our liberation and the liberation of the whole cosmos. And we together are protected by the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we together stand against the work of the powers in our world. And we can do this. We're told in verse 10 at the beginning of this pasture, pas passage, we can do this in the strength of God's power. We can do this because we wear God's armor. And what we're called to do, what we're enabled to do, is to stand, to stand firm. I don't know about you, but I find it very hard to watch the news these days. There is so much pain everywhere. Fires, droughts, floods. Our world is groaning because of the damage we've done to the natural systems of the planet. People who are desperate for peace or security are traveling through unimaginable danger to get to safety, but they can't be assured of being welcomed. Wars drag on. Homes and livelihoods are destroyed with no clear solution or end in sight. And then this week there was Afghanistan. People are seduced by lies and misinformation in ways that lead to destructive consequences for society and for themselves. Viruses mutate and spread, and the means to control or withstand them may not be available or may not be accepted. So much seems wrong and sick, and it's hard to see how we fix it. In the midst of this world, this real world we live in, we, the church, are called to stand. To stand for truth, for justice, for peace, for faith, for the spirit, which is the word of God. This, our passage tells us, 
is how we withstand the powers of evil in our world. We're the ones God uses in this cosmic battle. How we do that, how we use this armor will look different in different times and places. It might include hosting and welcoming refugees in our city. It might include raising funds for bail to give asylum seekers a chance for new life. It might include putting together meals for those who need it, or planting trees, or writing letters in support of fair funding for schools. It might include supporting families with affordable housing, or helping strengthen family life with support or counseling. We may not see what we're doing as part of a cosmic battle, but it is, and we're in it. Now, we need to be a little careful here. We're being told to put on God's armor, but if we take this to mean that we fight this battle under our own power, even as a church, we will quickly burn out. No, this is God's armor, and this is God's battle. As we read in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Our strength comes from God. And our passage culminates after this description of the armor we put on and the battle we're in with a final call to pray. So it's the same call that we heard from Todd last week. Keep praying. This is the action that strengthens us, that equips us, that above all grounds us in this battle. Verse 18 tells us, pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Our prayers for each other and for our world, our prayers that God's kingdom may come on earth as in heaven, that is the most important weapon of all. Back in the day, we used to see a slogan painted in murals on the sides of buildings in southern Africa. I learned it in Portuguese from seeing it in Mozambique and Angola. Some of you may have come across it in Spanish. I don't know if it's exactly the same. The slogan, usually accompanied with raised fists, was a luta continua. The struggle continues. And it was a call and response that they would use at rallies and marches. The leader would say, the struggle continues, and all the people would respond, victory is certain. The struggle continues, victory is certain. But one time, I heard a pastor in Angola say that for a Christian, that slogan needs to be turned around. It's not, the struggle continues, victory is certain. But instead, for Christians, it's, Victory continues. The struggle is certain. 
So for us, the church in the world, that's how it is. The victory has already been won. We know that. God has already defeated these powers through Jesus' cross and resurrection. That's not in doubt. Victory continues. But the struggle is certain. And we live in the midst of it. So we stand firm, putting on the whole armor of God. Victory continues. The struggle is certain. Thanks be to God.